Hi, everyone. It's your host, Isaac. Last Friday, we got a chance to hang out at the Wythe Hotel in Williamsburg as part of a pop-up radio lounge organized by Work by Work. It was our very first live podcast. We were all nervous, uh, especially me. If you email me the words that I mispronounced um, and you get them all, you get a prize. But for those of you who weren't able to live stream the episode, we are rebroadcasting it here. Now, we were the very first podcast. They wanted to lead with their best foot forward. So there are a few technical issues in the first segment, but you can still enjoy the show. And without further ado, here it is. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, and we're coming to you live from the Wythe Hotel in Williamsburg. Thanks to Work by Work for having us. Um, So we have a very special show for all of you today. First, we're going to be looking at the landscape facing young artists trying to make it in the art world today. Why is the road to success more difficult now than in years past? And could a more challenging environment for artists actually be a good thing for the art world as a whole? Well, you've got the answers. Then we'll look at how some of those same young artists have taken to social media to charge major fashion brands from Zara to Topshop with stealing their work. We've assembled a panel of special guests to discuss this troubling trend and what artists can do to protect themselves and what it means for that graphic tee you might soon wish you didn't buy. So all of that coming up. All right, I'm joined for the first segment of today's podcast by three members of the Artsy team. Deputy Editor Alex Forbes. Hey, Isaac. Hey, Alex. Senior Editor Tess Thackera. Hey, Isaac. Hi, Tess. And Specialist and Artsy Projects Curator Elena Soboleva. Thanks for having me here. Hey, Elena. So, over the past year, a flurry of headlines have heralded the end of several years of feverish speculation on the artworks and careers of young artists. The news has been followed by a number of closures of influential young galleries that supported the work of these emerging artists. And while the ups and downs of the art market don't necessarily correlate to the quality of artistic output, getting gallery representation as a young artist right now is without a doubt more difficult than it was a year and a half ago. What's more, pending cuts to federal funding for the arts could further choke off institutional capacity to show these artists work. So... That's a very bleak picture. Um, But Alex, maybe we should just start by talking about what the landscape was like a year and a half ago for emerging artists. Sure. I mean, I guess we're coming off of a period of rampant speculation, particularly for young artists' work. Um, What you saw through um, basically 2012 through 2014 uh, was young, mostly male, mostly painters, uh, the prices for their work going through the roof in a very short amount of time. Artists who were selling for $10,000 in a gallery setting were all of a sudden selling for several hundred thousand dollars in an auction setting. Now, on the one hand, that doesn't reflect a huge swath of of young creatives as a whole, but it also provided a backdrop on which galleries were seeking to bring on a new artist, uh, not every week, but every few months, uh, have something new, fresh to show at at fairs and in their exhibitions. And so whether or not you were one of these uh, so-called zombie formalist guys or um, just doing other really interesting work, there was a lot more appetite and ability to show to fr- show fresh artists. And the zombie formalists, just you know, for those listeners who might not know, were kind of emblematic in a lot of ways of this period of speculation. Yeah, this is a kind of process-based painting um, that 
you know, has uh, abstraction that looks really good on the wall. There's some fantastic artists that were doing this kind of work too, um, some, some less so that were kind of capitalizing on a market trend. And uh, Elena, so what's kind of changed now? Well, we've definitely seen the market cooling off. Um, that's been an overall trend across the different price points. So from emerging all the way through to the high-end auctions, that's definitely been um, what's happened in the last year or so and continues to, to happen. And uh, we're seeing galleries consolidating. It's definitely um, those uh, that are smaller, you know, some have closed and others have been creative in finding new spaces or new partnerships. Uh, and for young artists and emerging artists, it's become sort of um, less of a market where there's uh, less opportunities. And so there's still some great opportunities, but because the galleries that are established are not necessarily bringing those artists to the forefront as much and not uh, leading with those artists at art fairs, and um, you know, it's definitely been a little bit slower. Yeah, I think it's also worth noting that some galleries sort of tried to resist that market upswing um, by cultivating collectors with a longer term interest in their artist's work rather than more speculative collectors looking to sort of flip works. Um, and as a result, some of those galleries have been able to maintain healthier markets for their young artists. Right, and this is like the stereotypical binary. There's which, which we'll talk about how real this is in a second, but then there's, you know, there's one half of collectors uh, who are, you know, love art, they care about art, they're interested in the artist, blah, blah, blah. And then the other half are sort of um, finance people who just want to make, you know, flip a painting really quickly. But, Elena, it's not that simple. I disagree. <laughs> Good, break that binary down. You can't put it in a black and white. Um, it's really all in between. And so there's certainly an extreme and few individuals that became the emblem of this kind of flipper speculator market. But really, there were, there were and still are great collectors who still let's say buy in depth or buy in bulk, whichever you like to you know, call it, um, in terms of young artists. And I think the question is whether they you know, will sell back into the market at a profit, um, but regard regardless, they are able to sort of control and influence the artist's career and market because they own a significant portion of the work. And there are some great collectors and artists you know, rely on those collectors to really support them. So it, there really is no, um, well, there's people who we're definitely worse at it and hurt artists by doing so. Um, just, you know, the fact of, you know, buying as an asset, um, you, you, need, you need the secondary market, you need the assurance that if you're going to spend 20000 on something, the value of it is not going to disappear. So while galleries don't want you to put it back in the market, a collector needs to know that there is a market that exists for the work. Well, and I think it's important to remember that this was also a time when there were a lot of new collectors coming into the market. So um, it, throughout history, when, when people start collecting art, there's a, a kind of education process, um, certainly um, in a more kind of brand-led landscape that we see across culture today. Um, if something is selling for a lot of money and seems to be the popular thing to do, um, there are a lot of kind of newer entrants uh, to the collecting field that will, that will go after that. Now, I think a lot of those people have gotten much more educated over the past few years and are buying um, potentially more expensive works. That means less opportunity for as many artists and potentially a fewer number that can come to the top. Um, but nonetheless, potentially also uh, an opportunity for artists whose work um, is 
slightly more conceptually rigorous or difficult, doesn't you know, necessarily look as great above the couch, um, but might be dealing with um, some of the really you know, salient issues of our time. Yeah, so, so there is a sort of argument to be made here that uh, this sort of slowdown is a good thing for the art world as a whole. I think we can probably all agree on that, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> that, um, you know, if an artist early on in their career sees a huge momentum, it's not always a good thing. They can end up feeling pressure to continue making the same type of work over and over again. We've seen this with artists like Lucian Smith. He's sort of the famous example of this. Um, you know, I spoke to Mira Dancy a year or so ago, um, and she was saying, I don't want to have to travel to another fair and do another site-specific mural. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think artists early on in their career, it's important that they have license to experiment then. But I mean, always for artists, but perhaps then more than ever, that's crucial. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think it's interesting. You know, I want to unpack the, the nuts and bolts. So, so we're sort of talking about an emerging artist, uh, which, you know, we all, we all write about these people all the time. But so, so if you're not... If you're not familiar with uh, this phrase, emerging, how does an emerging artist emerge, Elena? <laughs> well, when, uh, when an artist becomes uh, someone who decides to take up art as a practice, and whether that's an MFA or someone switching careers, and then comes to it, you know, they're starting out in the art world. And for them, they still don't have a gallery. They still you know, are in the very early stages of having shows and residencies. And so it really is about building um, out in all directions. And, before, um, a few years ago, you could really emerge by the support of collectors and then having a secondary market, and that was not fully healthy. And um, the way that it's traditionally and sort of, you know, we're kind of back into that model is where you still need the critical and institutional support. And so uh, that means that, you know, you really have to be getting collectors as much as you're getting sort of critical reception for your work and um, also getting sort of starting to get into biennales or potentially into sort of, you know, that's even a little bit aspirational, but into kind of group shows and things like that. Yeah, and so, so Alex, maybe you can just quickly clarify as well. So the process by which, when we say secondary market, because that's where a lot of the speculation is happening, what, what does that actually look like? Well, what you saw happening was, uh, was collectors then selling artists' work at auction, and I think that that's one of the things that, that potentially gets lost um, in some of the conversation around the, the kind of spectacular increase in price that you see is when an artist sells a work for $10,000, they'll get 5000 when a collector then uh, goes back and sells that same work for $390,000. Uh, a couple of years later, the artist gets nothing. Um, that, that varies from country to country. In the UK, um, there is this artist resale right, and they do have... Um, some recourse to get uh, some funds back, but in the U.S. Um, they they don't recoup any of that. So I think that's also part of the reason why, um, for those of us in the art world that we're seeing that happening, it's a bit troubling because it doesn't actually go back and support the people who um, who are making the work. Now, okay, there are collectors who will say by selling their work for a lot more money down the line, they can go back and reinvest in a lot more younger artists' work. Um, but people have generally seen that argument as somewhat dubious. And if, and if a, a work sells for a high price uh, at auction, can the artist then raise their prices at the, at the gallery level, at the primary market, or is that not going to You happen? tend to not want to do that. Um, I think you know, it's, it's a very strategic and slow move for young artists that um, need to build up the right collectors over time. Um, so it's not so much about gaining uh, an immediate hit of cash. I mean, there are certainly people who do that and who make a few million dollars in a couple of years and then fizzle out. Um, but I think that the smarter 
artists in the long run have been those with um, galleries who are committed to a, to a slow and steady path that lets them build up the price for their work um, in a way that kind of does actually reflect the real value that they're creating by way of, as Elena was saying, um, inclusions in museum shows and collections, inclusions in major private collections um, that may also be uh, publicly accessible, like, like some in New York and many in, in Miami and in the US. I, I will say, though, that artists are not able to capitalize on the auction gains. Um, and they, what I've seen is they do try to capitalize on the volume of work being produced. So if the work is very much in demand, um, an artist can produce more, and even if it's selling at lower price points, they still can sort of, you know, see that. And we saw a little bit too much of that in the last couple of years, where there was um, overproduction to a level. And that kind of goes back to the point of Tess was saying that it became very serialized and basically um, almost creating multiple iterations of the same painting, so that you can get it to collectors quicker. Yeah, like how we're talking like hundreds of paintings potentially sometimes? We, we are sometimes talking about hundreds of paintings in a se single series that look fairly similar um, and, you know, are kind of also very standardized shapes. Um, sometimes, you know, it's kind of the perfect loft apartment scale and... Uh, <laughs> it, it, yeah. it looked really good in this hotel, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I was just, when you were talking about imagining a painting over a couch, I was like, oh, on this couch right behind you, maybe one would be perfect there. You know, we're sort of talking about uh, this moment of speculation, like, you know, there's a nail in the coffin for it. Uh, but wh when did that kind of happen? You know, is there a pivotal moment, Alex, where everyone was like, oh, this is it, it's done? I think the media moment for it was this um, Philips New Now sale at the end of September of last year. Um, now, I, I think we were seeing kind of cracks in the veneer of the, of the emerging art market for some time before that. But you all of a sudden had um, artists who w were kind of taking the opposite dive where uh, months before their works had been estimated to go um, in the six figures and now they were selling for $7,000. I think there was one work that even went in the hundreds uh, that I know you, you kind of yeah, we were said you wish you would have but then, purchased. But then but I actually looked up a picture of it and it was like very brown and not, <laughs> not very nice. So I wouldn't have bought it if I had known. But you know, you see a work sell at auction for $700 and you're like, oh, maybe. You know? <laughs> um, so I think that, that captured the public's attention as kind of this moment where, hey, okay, we're in a different environment now and have to think about what, what do we need to do to not, you know, to, to, what do we need to learn out of this experience? How can we and, uh, find a way to make a more sustainable market for these artists? Just a side note, um, that in tandem with that decline in the emerging art market, we've also seen a rise in a sort of revisionist market. So um, artists who have been around for several decades, in some cases, um, not getting all that much recognition um, are now sort of being given opportunities and surfaced and I think um, those revisionist models came about in part because collectors were looking to diversify their holdings by um, finding artists that were a bit more established but that were still affordable. Yeah, I think it actually speaks to the kind of cult of the, the new and the young and that now we're getting back and kind of looking at the, the inherent quality of um, of artists' work and, um, you know, people who got left aside in the, in the conversation for so long. Yeah, someone like Betty Tompkins um, is, a, is a prime example. Right, so when you say sort of revisionist, you mean like going back and looking um, at the artists who have been sort of ignored by both the canon excluded, and the market. Often so due to gender or race, race yeah. or, yeah. 
No, that's 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 interesting. So I I think. Um, Elena, though, you have sort of a different take that it's not one, there wasn't one specific moment, this sort of just gradually, the market has gradually shifted to where we are. Well, I would say that there's still speculation. It might not be on the emerging art market space. So maybe right now it's on the revival of Damien Hirst. Maybe it's on the condo market. So, oh boy. And I mean condo. Um, so it's just, it's more about where the opportunity lies. But certainly I think there's, a, um, there's kind of a slow, gradual, you know, um, tapering off from the sort of emerging process painting, but then there was also sort of a rise in, I would say, female figurative art that happened. So th there's constantly sort of new movements that, that keep coming in, um, and there's still artists uh, like Harold Longhart who will, you know, sell at 700,000 at auction that, you know, a few years ago were still in a very approachable range. Yeah, I think what you have seen is that due to kind of the, the economic and political uncertainty that are the, the very fabric of our, our lives these days, um, you do have a, a number of people who um, were buying quite a bit of art um, in the past, though, who, who have dropped off. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, so, so it's interesting to sort of think about the market uh, and what it means for emerging artists, but it also obviously, it sort of seems to have an effect on broader things, like who, the... the art history and sort of what, what is being surfaced at museums, at galleries, and all these other places. I mean, I know there's been a huge uptick in, in women's uh, group show at exhibitions, and I, and I imagine that's like kind of tied to, to this. Um, so with, with this sort of engine kind of slowing down, how do uh, artists emerge today? What's the process like? I don't know, Tess, can you Well, I mean, one? I think... Um you know, young artists would do well to try and sort of diversify the channels through which they're receiving attention. Um, a lot of institutions have it built into their programs to provide opportunities to younger artists. The Whitney is one that has a great emerging artist series. Um, the Studio Museum in Harlem, it's really sort of part of their DNA to surface the artists in residence younger program. black yeah. artists. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, I think pursuing institutional opportunities, um, residencies, um, we also, you know, fortunately have social media and the internet now, so there are more uh, channels through which you can get noticed. Um, One of the interesting things that actually we were talking about in a recent Artsy podcast, and you were kind of leading that discussion, Isaac, but is that um, given the current political climate and threats that have been made uh, in various budget discussions to the NEA, there are some knock-on effects even that institutional scene, maybe not institutions at the level of the Studio Museum in Harlem and the Whitney, um, but that might also um, negatively affect opportunities for, for artists yeah. going forward who are trying to take that more slow and, uh, and rigorous path. Yeah, and you can imagine that that emerging artists programs would be the first to get knocked off in an institution because they're looking to get people through the door and the big names, the big blockbuster shows are the ones that are gonna get people through the door. And I think in general, you're not expecting to, you know, come out of an MFA program and be a working artist and just sustain yourself only on your art in the first two years, but rather understand that it's a process that you have to aim towards and there's kind of a higher sort of, you know, goal there. It's really, really important. Um, and so artists sort of realigning their own expectation and their own goals. Um, and so artists, you know, aiming to be... Um, in a documenta one day instead of at the Gagosian gallery is sort of really the key here. Yeah, and, and there's also, 
I know we've spoken a little bit about like how changing models of the way in which art is sold can even change how an artist should expect to maybe move through their career. I mean, Tess mentioned social media, but there's also, um, you know, even what it's like to be a gallerist is changing. Totally, and I think more artists should embrace artist-run galleries, um, showing each other's work, because really it's not about um, having sort of influence on a wider art world. To, to make it sort of within the very core, you need to have influence over your peers and over other artists. That is how great artist movements are shaped, um, and uh, so artists should be doing collectives, showing each other's work um, more, um, you know, sort of funny spaces start to emerge and we're seeing sort of a decentralization of that. So um, you don't need a you know ground floor Chelsea space because now with the sort of economy of the JPEG and uh, just the very sort of you know eager um, amount of art fairs and um, you know every social media happening you can really be in a different location and still making an impact on the sort of visual culture. Just side note that um, I've heard a lot of artists say that they make art for one another, not for collectors. So creating an environment in which, as Elena says, um, artists are working sort of with each other in mind, I think is, is healthy for the work. Yeah, I mean, I, I also think it's it's interesting, you know, just to hop back to the NEA, because I think when we talk about emerging artists, there are some kind of asterisk implications when we say that. So like the NEA, for example, uh, makes its impact felt across the whole country and not just in sort of like these institutional centers. So when we say emerging artist, you know, I think um, if we're being self-critical, sometimes we mean, you know, like people who live in New York or people who live in LA or people who live in Chi maybe Chicago. Berlin. Berlin, London, yeah, you know, London. Major, you know, these major, major these major metropolitan capitals that won't hurt um, if the, well, They'll hurt, but you know it, it, the major impact of the NEA will be felt in these sort of places um, where where it's probably much harder to even make it as a as an emerging artist. Yeah. I don't know, Alex, do you have any sort of uh, any sort of thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think that you know <clears throat> one of the interesting things we've been looking at as well when we're looking at NEA is just if you have, you know, how do how do you have access to art in the first place? How do you even if if you lose access in more rural or less uh, you know coastal cities, let's say. Um, how do you even have the idea that you might want to be a contemporary artist? I mean, it sounds kind of trite, but on the other hand, um, I think that that has been shown to be key in, in gaining new perspectives on, on what we can, on what cultural production today is. So, if we're sort of looking at the future, um, where where is the uh, market for emerging artists going to be headed, Alex? <laughs> I'm throwing all the market uh, questions to yeah, you. Yeah, I'm, I'm the market guy, I guess. Um, there, there was an interesting report that came out this week uh, by a research firm called Art Tactic um, that looks at the prospects for the art market in 2017. Um, they had service, uh, surveyed a number of um, professionals in the art world and, and did find that people do feel more optimistic about this year than years past. Uh, political and economic uncertainty still reign supreme and, and the kind of factors that are going to be um, impinging on both the opportunities for galleries and the opportunities for um, the young artists who, who they show. Um, but there's a general feeling that um, the low end of the market, and, and some data to support it, the low end of the market is starting to expand again. Um, maybe, you know, hopefully we've learned something in the past few years. Um, and, you know, people, mm. you never know. Well, yeah, that, that's probably false. Um, wishful thinking at the very least. But, um, but it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, 
it's definitely not where it was, but it seems to be heading in the right direction. Yeah, Elena, I feel like I'm, I'm also curious to get your thoughts on, on the future. Well, um, I think it's going to lead to some really great quality work coming out of this time period and, you know, work that has a historical impact and really going to shape our generation because, uh, like we discussed, things are coming not from a collecting and auction angle but really supported through the whole spectrum of the art world and because it's a sort of slower process that has a critical engagement that has a sort of, you know, usual Biennale group show sort of cycle um, of, you know, rising to the top. We're going to be seeing collectors engage with that in a more serious way. And so I, I think it's very optimistic because the art, you know, that is really going to be remembered from this decade or this, this time period is, is going to be great. And, and Tess, do you sort of see the kind of, uh, you know, revisionism in a positive sense continuing or do you sort of worry that that could abate? Um, well, this is sort of a question that we've been grappling with in some of our articles, hoping that it will grow roots. Um, it needs to, definitely. <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, I think so. I think, you know, if you believe in a slow progression um, in which the right people are getting surfaced and, um, you know, people are increasingly getting opportunities regardless of race and gender, then um, we're on the right path, one hopes. Yeah, and, and so what, what's one piece of advice, just to, to wrap up here, what's one piece of advice that each of you would give to a young, aspiring artist uh, trying to make it out there, you know, in the, in the Big Apple today? Well, for me, I've seen uh, a, a lot of artists in the early stages of their career, they really rush to get a gallery. And to them, it sort of almost uh, seems like a race, and out of their, you know, class, he'll be the first ones. And, Really, it's a, such a longer-term marathon that I would advise artists to, you know, obviously group shows and solo shows are very important, but don't just, you know, get locked into a gallery immediately. Really understand your practice, really have an opportunity to develop it so that you see who, which program is the right fit for you. Yeah, I would say find a mentor that you trust. Um, try and educate yourself about the gallery world enough I think artists don't love really thinking about their collector base or thinking about the market that much. Um, you know, understandably, um, I've definitely heard artists say that it just pollutes the process, the creative process completely. Um, but I think if you don't know anything about the gallery world, then it leaves you quite vulnerable to being exploited. So, um, you know, I think universities are not great at teaching their pragmatics of, um, of a, a given field, um, but I think it's worth kind of boning up on the basics. Yeah, I mean, actually, kind of my, my advice would be fairly similar to both, but um, pick the gallery carefully. You know, that's if, if you don't want to have to worry about your market and about your collectors and about how your career is progressing, do your research. Don't, I mean, of course, it's a high class problem if you're choosing between a number of different galleries who want to represent your work. Um, but nonetheless, uh, as Elena was saying, if, if you're not trying to rush into it, um, if you are um, taking the time to do and look at how galleries have promoted artists in the past, are they jumping prices up significantly within the first few years that they're showing them? Um, are they instead keeping them low and, and, and focusing on the long term, putting them into um, significant museum collections, that's the kind of gallery you want to be with um, and, and hopefully will allow you to have some long-term career success. All right, I think we're going to end on those uh, wise words. So thanks uh, to everyone for joining us, both 
here at the Wythe Hotel and, and listening to us live. Um, we're going to take a short break to bring on the guests for our next panel, where we'll discuss the fashion industry's plagiarism problem. And if you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the Artsy Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you in a second. Hey, everyone. You're listening to the Artsy Podcast. Now, some of you may be headed to the Armory Show in New York this spring. And while you're there, don't miss Artsy's booth. We're bringing art, design, and cutting-edge technology together through our collaboration with Microsoft, Pace Gallery, and Drift. Visitors to our booth can put on Microsoft's HoloLens and explore a mixed-reality experience crafted by Amsterdam-based artist collective Drift. The HoloLens is the world's first self-contained holographic computer, meaning that it can merge virtual and physical worlds into one totally immersive environment. It's crazy stuff, and we can't wait for you to check it out at this year's Armory Show. This is the latest from Artsy Projects, which is our ongoing series of installations and activations in which we invite contemporary artists to reimagine art world spaces. Now, back to the show. Uh, as we've seen in recent headlines, younger artists are particularly susceptible to the plagiarism of their work, and one alleged culprit is fashion companies. Top Man, Zara, Versace, Forever 21, Lane Bryant, all of these have been accused recently of taking work from artists and putting them on everything from pins to t-shirts, and the trend doesn't show any signs of slowing. So here with me to discuss this issue are Mark Peroff, a partner at Manette, Phelps, and Phillips with a long history litigating copyright infringement disputes. Hi, Mark. Hello. Good morning. Adam J. Kurtz, an artist and designer. Hi, Adam. Hello. And Yayoi Shionori, a senior counsel at Artsy. Good to see you outside of the office. Yes, and off Slack. Um, Adam, I, I want to begin with you because you have a personal experience with this issue um, with a fashion brand allegedly taking your work. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what happened there. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and bear with me as I use the words allegedly, apparently, uh, <laughs> seemingly. Somebody's trained you very well. It's, it's me. It's a process. Because, uh, well, no one prepares you for this. So you wake up one day and a major, arguably the world's largest fast fashion retailer um, has apparently, I didn't say that, uh, has apparently um, taken your illustration work and applied it to garments. Um, for someone like me, who's you know still a relatively small scale um, artist and maker, to see something that you know I printed at home in a zine, then be affixed to T-shirts that are sold worldwide, is uh, a really ridiculous sort of feeling. I mean, you you feel very sort of violated. Um, you know, the small like hand. I mean, it was my handwriting. It was just, it was absolutely bizarre. It was like my diary was printed on a t-shirt. Yeah, and so, so to give a little context, you were one of these 40 or so artists who were embroiled in this, this major case last year um, where Zara was accused uh, of, of basically taking the work of these, of these 40 artists and using them on these pins and t-shirts and everything. Um, and that, that kind of, I think, put this issue on the map for a lot of people. It put the issue on the map for me because 40 is just such a huge number. Zara is a huge, a huge company. And I'm just, just sort of you know, wondering, um, 
Yo-Yo, maybe you can talk talk a little bit about this. It's sort of how you sort of see this issue from um, in a broader context. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think here what's important to realize is sort of the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times, where it is so easy for artists like Adam to create their work and potentially put them out there into the interwebs, whether through their Facebook or through their websites. Um, but it, in some ways, that dissemination of images works potentially as a double-edged sword because, because those images are so easily out there in the world, it's also quite easy for other third parties to potentially then see, screenshot, copy, reproduce, adapt, incorporate, potentially make derivative works of um, their works and then put them out there into the world as well. And so for artistic creation, um, I, I think we're in a very interesting time where so many people have access to images. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting because, Adam, you, you th- this, this uh, case with Zara got so much uh, press pickup partly because um, of the very intelligent uh, website that you made that kind of made it very easy for you know, writers such as myself to be like, oh, here's every image uh, side by side. Here's who I should reach out to if I want to quote. Here's all these things. So I'm sort of curious about how you sort of see uh, the internet and social media uh, playing a role in, in, in this case for you? How are you thinking about that? Uh, I think social media, when we're talking about Instagram or Tumblr, um, to a lesser extent Facebook and Twitter, uh, artists and curators and young people are essentially building mood boards that are ripe for picking by fashion brands, ad agencies, music marketing. I mean, we see this constantly, you know, especially I think like with, with music marketing, it's almost like Tumblr mood boards are just like slapped on to musicians and we're like, oh, she's like chill wave now. Okay. <laughs> um, and in the case of this Zara's alleged theft from over 20 artists and over 40 pieces of art, it's almost like they just went hashtag pins on Instagram um, and, and took what they saw. And of course, that's oversimplification. And it was probably third-party vendors overseas. Um, but yeah, I mean, people are telling the world what they like. And anyone with a brain who represents a larger company is like, well, the kids want this. Let's give it to them. We're making it a little too easy. Yeah, and there's also, you know, when I was writing this, this piece on fashion plagiarism that I wrote last year, one thing I kept hearing again and again was that there's no checks and balances within fashion companies to sort of, you know, do the due diligence and sort of slow down and say, okay, have we, are we sure that this is ours, or that we came up with this because of the pressure of just how much clothes and stuff people buy? I mean, I, I remember hearing something like the average wardrobe is three times the size today than it was like in the 1940s and where there's so much stuff and people are making so much more. Um, it's because it all falls apart. It's because it all falls apart, you know? It's all connected. So, so... <laughs> I'm I'm kind of curious, Adam, to to you know get your insight here because we're throwing around these words plagiarism, stealing, blah blah blah. You know what what actually is uh, copyright infringement? You know what are we actually talking about here as a legal as a legal issue? Okay, from a legal perspective, um, uh, people th- uh, throw around a lot of terms and and don't necessarily understand what the legal significance of those terms are. Um, copyright, which is uh, a protection of artistic works which is obviously uh, germane to artists, protects against um, the unauthorized copying or distribution of a visual work. 
two-dimensional, three-dimensional work. The idea that is implicit in that work is in the public domain, and anyone is free to copy that work, not the work, copy the idea, as long as they make their own independent version of that work. Um, but I wanted to say something apropos of what was said a moment ago, and that is that I think that we're living in a, in a, in a, a global climate that things are so fast, and, and the demands on individuals, whether it be designer, uh, fashion designers or marketing people, to come up with new ideas, creative ideas, to be the best one on the block. And they've been really been, been allowed to go into the sandbox and see you know, all kinds of art, all kinds of images, and they try to take a quick you know, uh, shortcut. Uh, to uh, creating an image that uh, they think could be very marketable. And with the proliferation of the internet and the global nature of the internet, you know, uh, an artist that may be in a small little town in, in Ohio, uh, uh, as soon as he posts his work on the internet, is a, is a global artist. And it's, it's a very, very big problem in the art world to keep control of one's art. Um, so th there's one thing I would like to say, though, and that is, and it's a very simple measure that artists can take, and that is when you're posting your work on the internet, you should indicate that it's copyrighted. And copyright exists from the moment of creation. No formality is required. Uh, you don't even have to put a notice, but if you do put a notice close to your work, a C in a circle and then your name, then you are telling the world that you're protected and that serves as a disincentive for copying. Yeah, and I know it's, it's also interesting because we're talking about this in, you know, globalized world where, yeah, an artist in Ohio can have their work, you know, taken by a company in New York or even in China or somewhere. Um, and, and the statutes protecting them, copyright, are actually quite old. Like, these weren't created in direct response to the rise of the Internet. That's absolutely right. And Mark and I can talk about this further, but at least at the U.S. level, the federal body of copyright was created in 19... last amended in 1976, I believe. Um, and so that was when um, very few people had access to the Internet to do work, to see images, to disseminate images. But yet, I think Mark and I are partially here at the table today um, because we want to say and we want to believe that this rather antiquated body of law, this legal framework still can protect artists' rights and artists' creative rights. And one of the great tips that Mark raised was to add that copyright notice. So to be clear, copyright comes about when somebody creates a fixed, tangible form of expression. So it's automatic, so an artist has that right. But as Mark says, in order to put the world on notice, one of the good ways to do this is to add that copyright notice. And a lot of people usually put, there, there's no actual formal rule for what that notice should look like. But usually, um, in standard practice, it's the circle C, artist's name, and then maybe the year in which they create that work. Yeah, Adam, I'm, 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 I'm kind of curious here because I just wonder as an artist and a designer, you know, with friends who are artists and designers, do you feel like copyright will save you or do you sort of feel like it's kind of a big bad world out there and you're just going to get plagiarized? You put a C, no matter what, it's not going to make a difference. Something that I learned through my experience with Zara, um, Forever 21, smaller brand. I mean, I have been allegedly ripped off several times. Um, you know, I think copyright law is still catching up. Something that I was very surprised about is that typography is not necessarily covered um, for someone who does a lot of, of lettering. Um, like one of, the, one of the examples in the Zara case is uh, bubble letters. It's a specific phrase, a specific style that represents the rest of that artist's body of work 
um, immediately it was clear that that was not going to be a strong case. Also, brands are smart enough to know that they can just change or adapt work. Um, specific phrases can't necessarily be covered. Concepts can't necessarily be covered. Um, a lot of our frustration in the specific Zara case isn't necessarily that they are clear-cut examples of copyright infringement. Probably half are. Um, and the other half is just like very explicitly derivative, and it's the context that matters most. And so, you know, of three pieces of mine that appear to have been copied, one of them is is purely the concept, but it's by association with 40 other works that it's very clear where it originated. Um, and so a lot of our issue is not strictly legal, but it's also a frustration of if you know that you have clear-cut instances of copyright infringement in a current collection, you need to analyze the rest of the materials you're getting from your vendor. And so it's not strictly legal, but it is like a human decency thing. If three artists have complained, you better check 40 other garments with or, uh, like patches and pins on them. Uh, and that was our core frustration is like, Zara, do you or do you not care? <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the things that I've noticed uh, that artists don't uh, are not aware um, that as we said earlier, uh, copyright begins from the date of creation, and there's no uh, no requirement to uh, record a claim of copyright. There is a very very significant benefit of filing for a copyright registration within three months from the first publication, and that is because uh, in the event someone does infringe uh, and you want to stop them. Um, you are entitled as the artist to seek what is referred to as statutory damages, which are which is an alternative to actual damages that is often very difficult to prove. So if you're an emerging artist with not a large reputation, the value of your art is not very high, someone is ripping you off, they're copying it, by availing yourself of statutory damages, you'll have a lot of lawyers that will be very happy to take your case. I think, though, and I, I totally agree with you, Mark. I think that's right. I think the interesting thing there is that sometimes it's hard for an artist to determine what part of their portfolio to actually register. If they have multiple images, multiple pins, for example, each one has to be registered separately. And I've heard that for, for, for some of the artists that I get to work with, they, they say it's just an administrative burden to be able to do that. I'd like to respond if I and just jump in because I just had this issue raised myself. We represent a, uh, an apparel company that uh, produces its own uh, prints and they wanted to register their prints as copyrights with the United States Copyright Office. And um, uh, there's a wrinkle in the law that if you apply to register before you make the prints available for sale, you can do a collection within one copyright application. So rather than and paying $55 as opposed to $55 for each particular art work that you have. Yeah, and Adam, I know for you this has become a, a bigger question than just winning in court or like receiving a settlement. It's sort of, it, it, it's, it's broader, it's more ideological. I mean, can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it does come down, at least from my perspective, to human decency. Um, and I have issues with people who repost art on Instagram without credit, too. I mean, for me, it's not about settling for X number of pins sold by, sold by Zara's um, international, like, subsidiaries. Right. You know, I don't need $40. Like, I'll be honest with you, like... The one very clear case was like extremely obvious. They didn't sell very many. It looked like crap. Like my fans weren't 
going to buy it. And people who did probably don't know. You know what I mean? It's, it's more about the concept. It's about respect. It's about valuing creative work. Um, in the Zara case, they took, or they allegedly took work from, mostly from illustrators who apply their work to pins and patches. And I think the thinking behind it is, these are pins and patches, like, no one cares. It was so much more of a respect thing. Um, and when this was happening, I did say this in an interview, and like, bear with me, there's not a nice way to say this. I'm an internationally best-selling author. I'm an award-winning artist. I, I've sort of earned my right to, to say, I'm an artist, I make this work. And for a company to just show up and be like, well, it's a pin. You know? And we did get feedback from the Zara case from people, particularly on Twitter, who were like, who cares, it's pins. And we were all like, this is our job. Like, this is my, my living. It's just, it's a really a respect thing for me more than necessarily a legal issue. Yeah. But I am curious because, you know, you bring in sort of how people respond on, on Twitter. Whenever, you know, I write an article on this, there's always like, a, that, that's totally different or that's not, you know, that is clear cut, blah, blah, blah. And I'm curious, uh, what are the sort of differences when a judge is looking at this and saying, oh, as a legal question, this has changed just enough? Um, maybe Mark. Well, first of all, uh, there are uh, uh, several elements that one has to prove uh, when they're uh, trying to um, uh, sue for copyright infringement. One is that the that the work is uh, been created. It's independent, creative. Number one, it has to meet a minimal threshold of creativity. So a slogan may not be copyrightable, or something that's in the public domain that you make a little twist to can't be copyrighted. But if you meet that threshold and you establish that you in fact are the creator and owner and author of that work, you then have to prove that a the other party, the defendant, had access to your copyrighted work, and because of the internet, most things are very available, and B, that there was a substantial taking, substantial taking uh, of, the, of your work. It doesn't have to be 100%, there's no percentage rule, but to the, uh, the eye of the average observer, that there's a substantial similarity between the two works. Uh, yeah, and, and I'm just, you know, we're, we're running a little low on time here, but I'm kind of curious, uh, Yoyoy, how do you sort of see this issue going forward? I mean, are we sort of doing it? Would uh, new legislation potentially nip this in the bud? Is it really just going to take more publicity? Because we can't rely on consumers to be like, oh, let me double check that this pin is, uh, you know, original. I, I think, unfortunately, my take on the law is that it's going to take a little bit longer for it to catch up to where we currently are in terms of how we see and disseminate images. And in fact, um, by the time that the law might catch up, perhaps we'll be seeing other forms of ways in which we see and disseminate images. So I think the law will always be a couple of steps behind. But I think it's, it's quite important for artists who create to realize that there are ways in which copyright can protect artists. Now the question is, is it effective or efficient? Maybe not. But I think the first thing is for artists to realize and to become knowledgeable about how the copyright might currently be able to protect them. I would just jump in that uh, many, uh, copyright is not self-enforcing. You have to take affirmative action to uh, pursue an infringer. Uh, so the mere fact you may have a piece of paper that says you own a copyright doesn't necessarily mean that it's not going to be copied. Right. And it can be hard or daunting at the very least for, for you know, emerging artists to, uh, to, to take that step. I mean, how... It's not that hard, guys. <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's honestly not Stand that corrected. hard. Um, you know, the costs add up. I definitely file a copyright in a series if you can. It's easier for photography. Uh, it's easier for sort of more concrete things. But 
Yeah, artists, if you have like your bread and butter, your core image, if you have what is essentially like a brand mark or a calling card, um, register that copyright. Just do it. All right. I think that's a you know great piece of advice to just leave it there. Um, that's all we have time for today, unfortunately. Thanks so much to Mark, Adam, and Yayoi for coming on to the show. You've been listening to the Artsy Podcast. Thanks also to the Wythe Hotel for hosting us and for Work by Work for organizing the whole shebang. For more of the Artsy Podcast, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. The music you've been hearing is by Baroque for free. And uh, see you next time. <laughs>